Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to The Stages Podcast. Something very special happens on the Sydney calendar at this time of the year. Opera Australia's Hand Opera on Sydney Harbour takes flight. The iconic setting at the Fleet Steps, Mrs Macquarie's Point, overlooking Sydney Harbour towards the Opera House, is a majestic setting to experience the world's great operas. In recent years, the great musicals have also been celebrated with a production of West Side Story taking full advantage of the expansive stage that hovers above the water to craft inventive and mesmerising staging and performance. This year, we are treated to an exciting new production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera. The conductor, who has guided both shows, is my guest today. Musical director, Guy Simpson. Guy Simpson, welcome to Stages. Thanks, Peter. So, in a career of 40 years plus, you must have attended quite a few opening nights. <laughs> yeah, a lot of opening nights. I mean, luckily we get invited to a lot of uh, events like that and um, yeah, try to go and see most things. I've, I've slowed down a little bit on that in recent years, but in the past certainly I've tried to see everything. Do you enjoy opening nights when you're conducting a show? I do. I mean, I, conducting is, it's, uh, I sometimes say it's a drug and it is irreplaceable as a, a kind of a adrenaline fix and I do love it um, again as, as I said earlier I, I'm, these days I, I think I'm going to do less of the long 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 runs and more of the shorter runs because uh, that's the way that my career sort of led me but nevertheless I want to stay in the pit I keep saying to producers don't, don't think of me as just a supervisor let me actually get in the pit occasionally but th- talking of long, long runs, there, there are a couple of shows, though, that you've had quite a long affinity with, you know, um, Miss Saigon and, of course, Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, those two, start, two shows. I, I was very lucky to be um, active back in the day when they were coming out, those early the, shows. The English blockbuster, the English mega, blockbuster. mega. Yeah. Cats was the first one for me, and then Phantom, Saigon. Um, so to be present and, and conducting... When orchestras were large as well, you know, back in the day. Uh, yeah, it was very good. It was a great time. Got the golden years. I don't want to sound like a silly old grumpy old man, but, uh, you know, the golden years of that kind of activity. It was amazing to be around. So how big would the orchestra have been in those days? Well, in Phantom it was 27. Wow. And Saigon was 29. And there was no question about that. There was no, it was never discussed about how can we reduce this. 
until many years later when synthesizers became much more uh, elaborate and sophisticated and programming became a real art. And then they reduced those orchestras down to, I think, Phantom's now 14. I'm not sure what, what Miss Saigon is. Now, I should make a very quick comment on that. For Hosh, we are using the full 27-piece version. That would be my next question. Yes, Handis on Sydney Harbour. Uh, the, the Australian Opera uh, are departing from tradition this year and uh, rather than staging a classical opera, they are presenting another musical. Uh, West Side Story, you have done previously. Yes. And now Phantom of the Opera. So that's great to hear that there's a, a big 27-piece orchestra back to yeah. that original orchestration. That's the original, yeah. Because there's nothing more thrilling than, than the sound of a big orchestra also. Well, you and I think so. We know, I, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Producers, maybe not. Uh, I think they do. I, to be really fair, um, Frosty in particular, John Frost, loves a big orchestra. But I think everyone does. But I also understand the economics of things these days. And uh, as whereas I would fight as, as much as I can to have the larger versions, I do understand that there are many, many other factors in play in producing a show these days. But hearing a full orchestra, that sound is extraordinary. It just lifts the audience and, and the performers, I guess. It's irreplaceable because as a conductor, you just have 27 human beings expressing themselves and giving of themselves and you can't beat that it's 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 almost an intangible thing though it's it's hard for an audience member to say oh i could feel those 27 human beings down there they don't know what it is creating that sound but it's there's 27 hearts that's what it is must be an extraordinary sense of power driving that bus uh yeah i guess um driving the bus yeah it is. It is. Uh, power is a funny word. I mean, it's it's a very much a collaborative yep. experience yep. because, as you would know too, rehearsing is everything. Rehearsing an orchestra uh, is the key. If you rehearse an orchestra properly, I think on the night you're merely reminding them of what we've rehearsed. So, it's more to do with preparation and collaborative rehearsal that I think creates the final product. Yes, I certainly didn't mean power in an egotistical way, no. but, but certainly in that, that you are the linchpin. A lot of responsibility falls on you because you are guiding the musicians and also the, the talent on stage. Oh yeah, and you could yeah. stop the show in two seconds. You just stop, stop conducting and it will just grind to a halt. Um, yeah, I, I, do want to, I do want to emphasise the collaborative nature of theatre making. I mean, it really is totally a collaborative experience between the stage, the crew and the orchestra and I think we all just have to absolutely work together to, to make theatre, that's what, that's what I do mm. I'm part of that machinery that, that, that somehow comes up with this intangible product I've always um, wondered at the marvel of musical theatre that these three disparate tribes the musos, the actors and the crew all come together. They're all very different tribes, but all come together to create this this magic. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. if you get the right people, we're all good at our jobs, and we all have respect for each other. Well, that's a hope, hopeful thing, anyway. And yeah, that's how it works. That's how you create the the magic. 
yeah, we are very different people sometimes. Sometimes not so much. You know, there's lots of lots of gatherings these days. We're all encouraged these days to mix with each other, and backstage is always a very pleasant experience. I think gone are the days when people walk out of the theatre at one minute past the bows. You know, I think there's more more mixing going on these days. A sense of community. I think so. A sense yeah. of community. Yeah. yeah. So, Phantom of the Opera, your association began in 1990. That's right. And since then, productions all around the world, Auckland, Cape Town, Pretoria, Johannesburg, Seoul, Istanbul. Yes. Do audiences differ in their reaction to the show? Only culturally, I think. I think in Asia, as a general observation, applause seems to be quite reserved during the show. And you think, oh, okay, that didn't land, that number didn't really land tonight. But then at the end, they go bonkers, and and the ovations are always extremely good. Um, So I think that's just a cultural thing. Um, But no, I think audiences across the world react to Phantom in a very, very similar way. Yes, they hold it close to their hearts. They do. It's it's such a universal story that it just digs into very fundamental human feelings and emotions. Well, it's that Beauty and the Beast story, isn't it? And told with the most luscious score by Andrew Lloyd Webber um, and set in the most romantic of cities, Paris. That's right. It's irresistible, yeah. So in 2012, Lyndon Terracini introduced Opera on the Harbour. You've experienced it with West Side Story. What do you anticipate the experience of Phantom will be like for audiences down on, on that wonderful uh, Mrs. Macquarie's chair I think fleet steps I think it's going to be extraordinary I mean this is a new production people I hope people realise it's not a translation of the Hal Prince production onto the Harbour stage it's a whole new production by Simon Phillips and Gabriella Tulitsova and Nick Schlieper doing the lights it's, it's the, the team who brought Love Never Dies to the stage here in Australia. It's the same creative team. Uh, so visually it will look quite different, quite epic. I've seen a few renders of it and it looks extraordinary. Classic Gabriella extravagance and opulence. Uh, we've increased the cast size, we've doubled the cast size. Well, wow, that's exciting too. The, 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 uh, that vocal sound will be very powerful. Amazing! It will be huge, and uh, it will look. I mean, when you need those people to fill the stage for starters, it's a huge stage. And you play in rain, hail will shine, don't you? Well, yes, we do. <laughs> I remember doing West Side Story there, and when it was raining, uh, we had somewhat modified choreography, um, and it looked incredible. When as the puddles of water were splashed up into the air. Uh, I'm not sure how Phantom in ball gowns is going to look in the rain, but hey, that's to be seen. <laughs> That's part of the, the challenge, the excitement. <laughs> yeah. Can the open air play havoc with voices? Um, it plays havoc with logistics um, that, that we've dealt with by having, well, normally we have in-ear monitoring, so the cast wear in-ears and they have very close, small mics attached to their faces. So we have a very immediate response to the vocal sound. So there's the wind factor uh, needs to be minimised by that, okay? And then 
the orchestra is coming out of speakers all around the site. Um, hopefully, well, not hopefully, there will be enough speakers around for everyone to get the full Phantom experience. And, you know, with a lot of rehearsal and a lot of tweaking, that's how we technically put the show on in regard to sound. It's a huge challenge. We have a lot of rehearsal time to do with sound. Yeah. Very important element. Very important. Yeah. So in the original production of Phantom in 1990, you were assistant to Brian Stacey. I was. Not a a bad mentor to... uh, Show you the ropes on Phantom? Uh, yes, and I didn't realise at the time, I don't think. I think I didn't quite appreciate Stacey as much as I perhaps ought to have done. But of course, over the years, I learnt uh, so much from him. And uh, yeah, I, look, I was hoping to get the job, and I didn't. And um, the producer said to me, Look, we think you ought to maybe be the associate on this. And so I met Stacey, and we clicked. And that's how that's how we got underway. Um, what had you done previous to Phantom? You, you obviously thought you were ready for a big show like that. Oh, look, I was confident. Uh, I, I'd just been musical director of Cats um, for quite a couple of for a couple of years, actually. And I thought, yep, I can do this. I'm ready. And Phantom, of course, was much more of a genre that I was used to being a classical musician who kind of got sidetracked into the theatre, the, my whole classical upbringing related to Phantom much more than, say, Cats did. So I thought I was ready. It's great. I mean, it's great how these things work out. I probably wasn't ready, and I learned so much, and then eventually when Brian left, I took over as the musical director for the Sydney season. Doing those long runs of musicals like Cats and, and Phantom... Do you wake up in the middle of the night with those tunes going around your head? Do you have those earwigs you can't get rid of? You do, yeah. always, yeah. yeah. But that was, that was the early days when I was you know, getting established and that it became a job that I just had to get on with. And there's all, there was always recasting, rehearsals. Um, a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes, behind the world of eight shows a week. There's a lot of daytime stuff on those long runs. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've chiefly worked in musical theatre and at the Broadway canon and, and show tunes from around the world. Do you have a favourite genre of music? What, what do you listen to to relax? Um, I, don't, I don't suspect it's show tunes. It's not. Because that's, that's your work. Not. And I've been famously quoted as saying, I don't like musicals. But I don't really <laughs> love musicals. I, oh, it's hard to explain. Uh, at home, I listen to opera. I, that's all I listen to. Classical, symphonic music too, but mainly vocal music. I love opera, um, and that's where my heart is, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't listen to musicals at home ever, unless I'm learning something. Do you have a favourite composer? Yeah, I do. I, I like Richard Strauss and Wagner, all the big German stuff. Big sounds. Big epic stuff, yeah. yeah. What about musical theatre? Uh, well, Stephen Sondheim would have to be my favourite. Uh, I think he's just a genius and also taps into my kind of classicalness. Have you worked on many Sondheims? I have, quite yeah. a few, yeah. Um, did company with 
STC a long, long time ago with Michael Tyak as the music director. I was his assistant. Um, I did Into the Woods with Stacy conducting. I was playing keyboards in that. This is going back a hundred years. That's at STC as well. That, that no, production. That, no, no, no. This was in concert in Melbourne. Oh, that famous. A long time ago. Yep. Um, what else have I done? Uh, what else is on my CV? I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> I've always wanted to. There. I mean, there's a, there are things on my hit list of my bucket list. I'd love to do a big production of Swingy Tide one day. Uh, I know the opera company has done it in the past, and I, hopefully it will come around again, and hopefully they'll pick me. <laughs> <laughs> pick me, pick me. Pick me. Oh, it's, a, it's yeah, I think it's sometimes best. Yeah. yeah. That's, and I'd love to do Sunday in the Park with George. I've never done that. I did a great production of Passion a few years ago in Melbourne at the Playhouse with um, Lifelike Productions. That's uh, Anton Berezin and Teresa Ball. Teresa's yeah. company, yeah, when that was running. Um, Neil Gooding was, con- was directing that. Uh, Sylvie Palladino was starring it. I had a ball. That's absolutely my cup of tea, is, is that show. I, in fact, I'd like to do it again if anyone's interested. Hint, <laughs> <laughs> hint. So, born in the north of England. Yeah. 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 A long, long time ago. Yeah, born in the north of England. And my family emigrated when I was five, 10 pound poms. And we went back for a few years when I was nine. And then we came back again to Australia when I was 12. Did music figure prominently in your, your youth, your childhood? No, there was zero music in our lives, in our, in our house. Um, I started playing the piano by tinkering on my, my grandma's neighbour's piano. And legend has it that I was playing the songs from the radio by ear or something, and then someone said he should have some lessons. And so I did, and it was the proverbial duck to water scenario. I went quickly and I loved it. And then we came back to Australia. And then I started properly learning here. Well, I was properly learning in the UK, but in a very small uh, village in the north of England. So I guess I came to Sydney and started lessons. And, um, yeah, just went from there. I loved it. There's obviously a strong yearning to, to express yourself musically, whether it be the piano or another instrument. Yeah. Yeah, I always wanted to play another instrument. I, I did play the cello when I went to the con because we had to do a second instrument in those days. Uh, I, again, loved it. I, I don't play anymore, but it um, might be a retirement thing, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> what was the music you were listening to as a, as a teenager? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> the first LP I ever got would have been for a birthday, I think, around my, maybe my 18th birthday or something. It was the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto and the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. Pinkas Zuckerman, I still remember it so clearly. And I think I probably, you know, wore it out. And I loved that music. So did you buy that or did somebody give it to you? I don't remember. Isn't that terrible? I may have bought it or it might have been a request to my parents who must have thought, how weird... But I remember for my 21st, I wanted a recording of Messiah, Handel. And I remember getting that from my parents. So what was the first exposure to classical music? From the radio or did you go to concerts with school? 
I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. That's very interesting. I guess it would have been on our theory classes because my piano teacher used to run musicianship classes every Saturday morning with five or six of us and part of that was analysing a Mozart string quartet or a Beethoven symphony or something. I guess that would have been my early introduction. There was nothing earlier. I mean, things like... I remember my auntie in England having a very spooky record cover of Dvorak, The Noon Witch. I remember putting that on and thinking, oh, that's, that's amazing. But I was more fascinated by the scary picture on the front than, <laughs> than the music. So I don't know what the early influences were. But there was something there that planted a seed, obviously, that just grew within you. I guess. Just, and I was, you know, I was pretty quick and good at playing the piano and that's that became important to me as something I could really really do alongside my academic life Um, I never ever during those years considered that music was a job a thing I never didn't even cross my mind were you a member of bands or anything like yes, that? Yes, I yeah. was. Yeah, at school we had bands, and I used to we used to play, you know, Queen and uh, other sort of hits of the seventies. Um, would have been terrible. I haven't got any recordings, but I can imagine how awful it was. But we played for the school dance occasionally and stuff like that. Back in the day when bands were, when kids at school all played in bands, I'm sure they still do. So was that a treat when you got to uh, musically direct "We Will Rock You" many years later? God, you had no idea. That was talk about full circle. I mean, I I remember clearly saying to Louise Withers, the producer, uh, when she called me about it, and I said, "Oh, look, I don't think it's really my thing, do you?" She said, "Well, at least come and meet the boys, Brian May and, and Roger Taylor." Yeah, right. And how can you say no to that? <laughs> so I remember auditioning. I remember going to these band auditions for Will Rock You, and they kept switching out everybody and keeping me on a keyboard playing two chords or something super easy and then at the end um, Brian gave me a piece of music to go and have a look at by myself on the piano and it was a solo in the show and so I was just fiddling around with that and then he said I'll just, just have a look at that by yourself we're not listening I thought yeah how many times have I said that in auditions yeah, you know? yeah. And he wandered over and started singing the song with me. And I thought, wow, can you believe this is happening? I'm playing the piano, Brian May is singing. And just keep going, guy, just keep going. And he said, yep, you've got a really good feel for that. And I got the job. And and I had the best time imaginable on it. I can imagine imagine. May and Taylor, of course, started their lives as classical musicians too. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. And Freddie too, wasn't? Didn't he start as? I don't know. Was he? He was very classical-minded, anyway. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Those recordings he made. Yeah. So all this music in your your teenage years, and yet you went off to uni and, and began a law economics degree. I did. Was that to get something to fall back on, or the urging of your parents to? No, it was it was actually just the logical thing to do. I did really well at school, and I had no idea what I wanted to do, and. As I said before, music just wasn't a thing, wasn't a viable option. I had no mentors or people to um, 
base that thought on about ever doing music as a career. So I started... Oh, no, well, I should go back one step. I did an audition at the Conservatorium. That's what happened. I did an audition at the Conservatorium and got in. And then I turned that down because the HSC results came in and I got into a law degree at Sydney. So I started my law degree and got a phone call from this professor at the conservatorium saying, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He said, you should be here. I said, well, I'm not, I can't, I don't know, I don't know, I can't do this. I've, I've got to get a job and, and a law degree will give me a job and can you guarantee that if, if I do a music degree I'll get a job? He said, no, but you should be here. Come and talk to me. So I did. And, and I, I guess I came to my senses and I went home and said to my dad, who my dad was you know, a very simple man, a builder with no musical um, bones in his body. They loved music, but they weren't practitioners at all. And I remember him saying, well, you know, you should do what you have to do, do what you want to do. I thought, well, that's the, the right answer. That's a great, great thing to say, yeah. <laughs> and so I left. I wasn't... I mean, it was only two weeks into the law degree, but I left and thought, yep, okay, let's play the piano and see what happens. And the rest is history. <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> I think you spend years and years practicing in those, in those piano performance degrees because we were in a very rarefied atmosphere of only a very few doing this performance strand. It was very, not a teaching degree at all. It was all about becoming what? becoming a concert pianist, I guess so. We just had concert practice all the time. We learnt repertoire really fast. And we had to deliver every six months there would be an assessment and we had to deliver with concertos, sonatas and concert pieces. Um, and I just blindly pushed through that, um, getting my repertoire going and getting my technique going and really learning how to play the piano. And I guess I was expected to go further and do a master's and all that, but I had a chat to Richard Gill. <laughs> Who opened the gateway to musicals. He did. Yeah. He sort of led me into this path of, of musical theatre. And, and, of course, I met actors and dancers and, and I started to earn some money, which was rather cool. And um, one thing led to another and... And then the, the Cameron Macintosh era really took over and that whole really useful slash Cameron Macintosh age of the epic musical which to me made sense and I, I kind of hopped on that bandwagon and, and the rest is history. Yeah. Back to Richard, he, uh, I think it was your fourth year he suggested that Marion Street Theatre in Kalara were looking for a, an MD. That's right. And I said, what's an MD? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, it's a musical director. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I'll go play for them. And I went and I played for Phil Scott, the famous Phil Scott. I played for him, but I played Ravel, which was probably not what he was expecting to hear. And uh, I didn't get the job. But the following year, they, they still needed somebody, and I guess they remembered this nerd from the con, and I got the phone call, and I went and did my very first musical at Marion Street Theatre. Which was? Seesaw by Cy Coleman. Right. 
I had I knew nothing about Cy Coleman or Seesaw. Uh, I dived in with a score and about eight or ten, I forget how many cast members who pretty much guided me through the rehearsal period. I remember... I think the, the Dunbars were in The Dunbars, oh my God, those people. So important to my life. Um, I remember one day Roddy or Dolores, I forget who, who it was, saying, um, Guy, we should learn this today, pointing to a certain part of the show. And I said, oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, right, we should learn this today. <laughs> they were guiding you, your guardian angels. Oh, they were my guardian angels. So, Guy, what does an MD do? What's uh, in, in your in a job description for MD? What's the responsibility on the, of the season of a show? Well, before the season starts, you're responsible for building the show. Really, you're responsible, partly responsible for casting the show with the director and the choreographer. So, choosing, well, firstly, knowing the show. <laughs> I, I now realise that you need to absolutely know the show inside out before you start the auditions. And Does it then, take very long to learn a score? Not really. No. No, but not really. But you've got to be across it. You've got to be across it. Mm. And these days, of course, with the internet, there's so much material out there, recordings, videos, full scores. Um, so then casting the show, yep. And then once it's cast, there's normally kind of a lull period, which is where we are right now with... Um, with Phantom on the Harbour. I must say, we're recording this in December. It will go to air in March, just as you're about to open. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, so this is great to hear what's happening this far out from Phantom. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. been going for some time. <laughs> some time. Uh, yeah, so we're in this lull period now where they're negotiating with the cast. To the, the producers are sorting out the conditions and stuff. And then we begin rehearsals on February the 21st. And I will go in with a fairly open mind as to scheduling, but there's certain things you need to do straight away, which is learn the music, because I think it really helps everyone, especially the director and the choreographer, if the cast know the music first. So when they're on the floor, they're not holding books and, and getting flustered and trying to remember stuff. So we spend a good few days really hammering the music and... Uh, getting that under their belts and then about three weeks in to rehearsals I start with the orchestra and we have orchestra readings and depending on the show the structure of those changes if it's a show with a strong rhythm section I'll have a rhythm section rehearsal first and then a full orchestra after that um, there are less and less rehearsal calls these days which, which is fine I think I don't think you need many um, and after a few, say two or three, maybe four, orchestra rehearsals, we have what's known as the Zitz Probe, which is when the cast meet the orchestra for the first time. And how exciting is that? Well, it's, it's everyone's favourite day, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. my favourite day too. Yeah. Um, you understand that up until now, the cast has been rehearsing with piano. So it's the first time they hear the orchestra. And there are tears, and it's an amazing day, and we all leave that, that rehearsal on a big high. Then we move into the theatre, and we take it all back to pieces again, and we start building it up with piano on the stage. Then we add the orchestra back, and that's the recipe, and eventually you build it up to the first preview. 
and then it's the maintenance of the, of the show through the season for sure on a long run especially I mean the first thing after the glamour of opening night really the first job is getting those first understudies really ready if they're not already ready because ideally they should be ready prior to that often because of time there is very little time to rehearse the first covers so as soon as we open we, we get the covers ready and then if it's a long run there'll be second covers as well so second understudies for everybody yeah and and after 12 months I guess maybe some recasting as well yeah recasting would start well before that because if the cast if someone's going to leave at the end of a contract then the auditions need to start months before to fill those gaps so on those long runs from years ago we, it was a constant daily routine of, of rehearsals or casting meetings all sorts of stuff are you generally um, the, the same musicians working with the same musicians or can there be a whole, whole orchestra of new faces and is it daunting to face uh, an orchestra that you're not familiar with or don't know well, that last question, absolutely terrifying. I've been known to go to my first orchestra reading just absolutely dreading it. And I've had this very conversation with colleagues of mine, Vanessa Scammell and Kelly Dickerson and other conductors who, who have felt that pit feeling in your stomach just before you actually get underway. But once underway... I'm absolutely at home. I feel like this is my thing. I know what I'm doing. I can do this. It's just the anticipation is pretty terrifying. Yes, it's... Um, but ultimately, when you get there, whether it's a new job or whatever, yes, there is all that anticipation beforehand. Uh, but when you're there, what you're playing with, you're at home. Yes, yeah. And, and now that I've worked at the opera a few times, I know those people, and they know me. They like me. I... I've heard, and I like them, which is absolutely true. And so I know there's a bunch of willing people there, ready to make music. It's not come some sort of scary offhand orchestra who's not going to be on side. So I do enjoy working with the Upper Australia Orchestra very, very much. Um, the other side of that is a freelance orchestra, which is mostly the case for commercial musicals. It's normally a freelance orchestra that I've helped put together with the producers I often suggest people who I'd like and and I'm op- very open to newcomers and hearing what the producers have to say about who's been around on previous shows and the, their performance so again another another collaborative step in putting together the orchestra I do admit I do have my favourites of course like any managing director CEO type person well you've got a shorthand with them you understand where they're going to go and what they're going to do that's exactly right and I've said that to some of them I said I don't need to say anything to you you just know what I want Mm -hmm. yeah that's great Um, conducting a show looks to be very physical how do you stay fit Uh, okay and can it be exhausting it is exhausting I say sometimes say it's like doing three hours of aerobics every night and it's kept me that alone has kept me fit over the years Um, I also do sailing and tennis as my other activities and they keep me fit as well. Have you ever had any RSI from from conducting or 
are there, are there exercises that you need to, to go through to warm up before the show? Or? I don't. Actually, huh? I don't really. I do a couple of stretches, but I've, I've been very lucky. I've, I've always had relaxed shoulders, which I think is very important. Right from my piano playing days, I remember my piano teacher really instilling that in me as a pianist to have relaxed shoulders because as soon as you put tension in your shoulders, the whole upper body becomes tense. So I've been pretty good with that. I've, I've used Alexander technique over the years myself. Um, but apart from that, there's no particular fitness stretching. Or Do you use a baton? Yes, absolutely, yes. And uh, are they um, special to the conductor? I mean, of course they're special to the conductor, but, but are there good batons and bad batons? Do you have to find the right baton? The right baton for you. Some people have very long, elaborate batons. I tend to go for a kind of a mid-size light very lightweight because my grip is very very light famously light because i've lost stick many times as some listeners may may recall if uh, you've been on the stage with me i've <laughs> often lost the stick onto onto the stage or into the audience um, but uh for me a lightweight baton is very important uh, and, and a loose grip because as soon as you start grasping it too tight that's when you can get all sorts of issues with your thumb muscles and so the point of a baton that's just for the orchestra to more easily read your instruction totally yeah, visibility right. extend the hand yeah. visibility yeah extension of the hand that's exactly what it is right. and I you know I've been known to as all conductors do put the baton down just use my hands for some smaller moments or just for a change you know, a change of look um, but when you have a lot of people at the back of the orchestra, further and further away, it certainly helps having a stick there. Are you uh, superstitious in the theatre? No. Do you have rituals that you go through? To... Uh, oh, I do actually. You ask all these. There's one thing I always do: is make sure my dressing room lights are turned off. I have no idea why. But if sometimes if I've forgotten, yeah, probably. <laughs> But to the point of sometimes I've gotten down the corridor to the pit, I've had my call, and I thought, the lights aren't on. No, the lights are on. And I've rushed back and turned the lights off. So, But that's all. I don't do anything. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. I don't know where it but came I've, from. Well, I've met a lot of performers who do similar things. Yeah. yeah. It's just part of that uh, psyching yourself into what's ahead for the next two or three hours. Yeah, there's a lot of that goes on. I can tell you there's a lot of... I think Brian Stacy once said to me, every night is opening night for someone. Mm, mm. Someone out there, they've saved up. It's a wedding anniversary. It's a big deal for someone out there. So I always put it on myself that every performance is as important. I mean, I know that goes without saying, but it is in my mind. Well, the, the, the glorious thing about Handa on Sydney Harbour also is that there are a lot of people seeing an opera for the first time or seeing it. There, of course, with Phantom, there'll be all the Phantom fans, uh, but there'll be people seeing uh, live performance for the very first time, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's our future audience, and we've got to grab them. And with, I mean, what better show than Phantom to grab an audience for the first time? Um, yeah. Do you have a favourite moment in the Phantom score? I do. It's pretty obscure, but it's it's the the Phantom's opera, the opera he writes in his last ditch attempt to woo Christine. 
he's tried everything and he just he, he decides to write this opera where she will seduce him and I think it's really beautiful and very sexy and quite a wonder it's, it's very short <laughs> but I think it's the best music in the show in my humble opinion <laughs> well I'm sure you're going to woo audiences and um your, all of your collaborators uh, in this, this production of Phantom um, Sydney uh, Opera Australia's uh, Opera on the Harbour for 2022 Guy Simpson thanks for talking to Stages it's been a, a delight thanks Peter Guy Simpson will help breathe new life into a much celebrated musical theatre favourite as he leads the orchestra with Opera Australia's exciting new production of The Phantom of the Opera a musical he knows only too well the Phantom of the Opera on Sydney Harbour plays March 25th to April 24th. Further information can be found at www.opera.org.au. One of the longest-running and most successful musicals of all time, the trio playing the iconic leads will be Melbourne-born Joshua Robson as The Phantom, Brisbane performer Georgina Hobson as Christine, and acclaimed West End and Broadway musical theatre performer Callum Francis as Raoul. And we are thrilled to see the wonderful Marie Johnson, currently playing the role of Madame Giry on Broadway, returning home to reprise the role. Many of you would know that Marie was one of the Christines in the original Australian production of The Phantom of the Opera. Welcome home, Marie. Thanks once again to my guest in this episode, musical director, music supervisor, orchestrator and conductor, Guy Simpson. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm and I'll catch you next time.